Hi, everyone. We're so happy to have you with us for the fourth episode of Can You Hear Us, where we, once again, take a stab at sharing the experiences of women and femme of color within the development sphere. As always, special thanks to the LSE Department of International Development for their support in hosting this space. My name is Monica. My preferred pronouns are she, her, and I'm one of your co-hosts. And hi, all. My name is Madeira. Pronouns are she and her, and I am also one of your co-hosts. Today, to continue with our current theme of having it all, we thought that it would be appropriate to touch on an area within the development sphere that has both created opportunities and barriers for women, and especially women of color, to professionally engage with and advise development, aid, and humanitarian projects. Consulting. I'm sure current LSE ID students' ears are ringing at the sound of me saying that word, um, for those that don't know, completing a consultancy project is one of the requirements for a good portion of the ID top master's programs. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, many of our classmates recently wrapped up their projects at the end of Lent term. So as we all begin searching for our next career steps, becoming a consultant seems to be one of the many and most popular means of, so to speak, getting your foot in the door. But is being a consultant, especially a female consultant, a way to having it all? The Can You Hear Us team once again wants to acknowledge that we do not represent all women or femmes of color, that we only speak from our own experiences and perspectives, but we are always striving to be inclusive to all women or femmes of color in this space. Thanks, Madeira. Just to start off, we have a couple of background informations and statistics. First off, according to consultancy.uk, a consultant is defined as a person that provides professional advice to clients via an organization or as an individual, but always independently from the client on a specific sector, business, or topic. In the UK, there are about 300,000 consultants, and the ONS statistics show that about 47% are women. According to past studies, management consulting is the 31st sector in terms of percentage of women hired. Yet in 2019, there was a 5% decrease in gender equality compared to the previous year. Additionally, according to PwC, there is a serious gender wage gap in the sector with about £85 billion in lost wages. Furthermore, the reality that a woman of colour face dual barriers inside companies is not new. Paired with the fact that consulting is highly competitive and can be extremely demanding, can also pose several difficulties for work-life balance. Thus, navigating these challenges with the support of others who have been in similar situations or have been through similar experiences is essential in highlighting the need for a women's equivalent of an old boys club. And Monica's right. The relevance of career networking is undeniable. And especially in consulting, this becomes crucial for women and minorities who face an important underrepresentation. Several studies indicate that networking is a vital tool for women to thrive as entrepreneurs, as well as access promotions and higher positions within a company. Similarly, mentoring is a tool that can advance women's careers by developing interpersonal skills that are valuable in a career such as consulting. There are three well-known identified areas, self-accountability, confidence, and retention. However, to avoid suggesting that women must engage in this practice more than men, we need a healthy and equitable approach to networking. So how does meaningful networking look like? How can we develop mentorship relationships? These are some of the issues that we will discuss today with our guests in order to help those of us who are trying to navigate the world of consulting. 
Luckily, we are joined today by a very, very seasoned consultant, but also an advocate for BIPOC representation in the field of international development. And on this note, we're so excited to be joined today by Susan Savatandira on Can You Hear Us? Susan is an LSE alumnus and the founder of The Black Humanitarian. She currently works as a consultant with a leading humanitarian organization in the sector and has previously worked with large international organizations as well as a smaller social enterprise. For those of you who don't know, the Black Humanitarian is a platform for the underrepresented voices across the development sector. And this is an incredible approach which aims at encouraging BIPOC to enter the sector as well as the existing BIPOC in the sector to create strong networks and be more vocal about their experiences. Welcome, Susan. Thank you so much for joining us today. It has become a bit of a small tradition due to Zoom to ask our guests where they currently are and what time zone they're in. So where are you joining us from today? Thanks, Monica, and thanks so much for having me here. I love the space that you guys have created, and I wish I actually had this during my time at LSE. So I'm not calling too far away from you guys. It's currently 4.10 p.m. here in Germany, so Central European time. So uh, I'm based in Germany. It's where I live and work uh, in Munich. Amazing. The fun weather as well is close to kind of close to similar to London, especially in the springtime. So (laughs) yes, a lot of rain. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully May will bring more flowers. That's the idea, right? Well, just to start off, I think that we would like to talk to you about just in general being a Black consultant. And so I read a recent LSE blog post that you just did about the importance of storytelling and specifically stories that highlight the uniqueness of being Black in the international development space. And that meant a lot to me because I'm Black and Native, and that's something that I always wonder, especially for my own feelings and apprehension of being within the field. So having said that, is there a specific story or a collection of stories that sparked your own career trajectory into international development? Yeah, sure. And thanks for sharing that. I had started my studies in international relations. This was my undergrad, also here at LSE. So initially I thought about entering the world of international diplomacy, hence I thought that the degree would be my pathway in. But as you can see, like I now currently work in international development. And this changed for me during my undergrad when kind of the narratives of what international development looked like changed for me during that time. So I'm Kenyan. I come from a country where you can say there's a thriving nonprofit industry where small and large NGOs have their headquarters there or a large office presence, a large number of staff there. So growing up, I saw international development kind of as a white man wearing Jesus sandals kind of domain, Mm -hmm. a space where others told us what we need to do. And, you know, I didn't really see myself in that space. I knew I wanted to work in social impact in some form or way, but I just wasn't sure international development at that time, how I saw it would be the right place for me. But this changed during my undergrad. So my mother at the time worked for the African Development Bank. She still does. But at the time, I started to pay more attention to her colleagues whom she did invite over for tea or dinner. And what struck me was that these were Africans talking about, for example, the public health program they were running um, in Malawi or a major infrastructure project they were recruiting for in the Gambia, for example. These were Africans working for themselves, you know, working towards the socioeconomic development of their own people. So I felt like for the first time I could see myself in the sector. 
I could see that there was a space for me. So after my undergrad, I applied to study the master's in development studies again at the LSE. And that's kind of where my career and development kicked off. But I would also say it's like also another key reason why I started the Black Humanitarian, because I was inspired by the stories I'd heard of the dinner table and I knew others would be. And I felt like this platform could be a good way to bridge that gap, you know, to allow Black voices to speak the truth and their experiences and other Black and Indigenous people of colour could feel seen and represented, but also inspired to enter the sector and, you know, affect change. So you've not only worked continentally on in Africa, but you've also worked in two other continents, correct? In the development sphere at this point. Am I right on that? Yeah, yeah. in, in Western okay. Europe and in Southeast Asia. Yeah, and so, you know, when you're talking about the actual visual of having people that look like you that are talking about the same sort of issues that you find important, but also see them actually working within it. It is incredibly powerful. And I think a lot of the times consulting, but also organizations are really trying to push this whole like diversity and inclusion sort of idea of that. And so curious about how that kind of influences now, how you're operating. I know that's been a really big push since the death of George Floyd last year. And like, you know, the importance of recognizing the issues that surround anti-Black racism. So yeah, like, do you think that the, are, the DEI is actually influencing consulting teams and the kind of work they're doing? Do you see things changing in a way that's more equitable, if you will, to like localizing work? Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Definitely a big issue. And you do kind of see that that shift now. I think definitely with a lot of organizations talking about, yeah, let's yeah. implement a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy. I think I could speak on that. Though the first thing I do want to clarify um, is using the term consultant and how I will use it throughout this. I work as a consultant and in that I provide expertise related to innovation and procurement within a humanitarian setting. Mm. But I think uh, the term consultant largely also applies to the contract type rather than necessarily the scope of work. So you'll find like a large number of professionals in the, develop- in the development sector, especially if you're young or mid-career, would be working on short-term contracts, not necessarily linked to short-term project work, but mostly on long-term programmatic work. Mm. So just for listeners to understand when I'm talking about consultants, it's not necessarily in the classic private sector management consulting scope. There there are a number of like think tanks and development consulting firms who do employ consultants in that format. I will say when you typically hear of consultants in the development sector, it's really based off of the contract type rather than necessarily the type of work that they're doing. But then, yeah, going back to really the meat of the question, which is diversity, equity, inclusion and practice. I think it really has an impact when it comes to the hiring of people within the team. I think you made a really good point about localization. If you're going to be implementing a project in a part of the world that is foreign to you, need to employ people that have the local contextual experience or maybe even partner with local institutions on the ground, which I think could lead to more effective and sustainable results. I think pre-2020, <laughs> I would say too often, I would see too few people who look like me. You know, yet a large number of projects I see being implemented by team members or other units involve a gender component or the target group is Black African females. Mm. And I often say, how can you possibly design projects when there's no one who represents the views or experiences of the target group you're designing for? Yeah. 
And I think a really good way for people to kind of understand that is that I'm going to use an example that's outside of development to kind of show yeah. why that is, uh, <laughs> why that can be um, difficult to understand. Um, is, and I think this was in the news recently, um, like last week, and you guys may have heard of it, but like two men presented their apparently revolutionary idea of pinky gloves um, for the German version of Dragon's Den. This is where um, basically people present to investors their business ideas. Mm. And they basically designed gloves for women to dispose their tampons and pads in like a quote unquote sanitary way. And they were claiming like, yeah, they address this gap, creating a product women desperately needed and that they understood how women thought simply because they're like married to women or had lived with women. I mean, you're nodding your head now. There was like a lot of backlash and public outcry. How could two men design a, pro a product for women that isn't necessary and actually promotes or like the stigmatization of menstruation as something that's dirty, right? right? And so when I was seeing that outcry, I thought this is a really good example to also bring back to ourselves. Why isn't there the same outcry when non-Black Indigenous people of yes. color design projects for Black and Indigenous people of color in Africa, Asia, or Central America, for example, claiming that they know what's best for them. And I think the same goes for when you're designing projects with gender equity without taking into account an intersectional approach. I mean, I think I, what you do see now is people are, are looking now at recruitment practices. How can they hire and make the sector seem a bit more attractive? Mm. I think it is attractive. I think there are people out there who want to work for social impact and to affect change. But I think, you know, organizations need to go beyond just having that, like that one line, like women are encouraged to apply or people from so-called developing countries are encouraged to apply. Yeah. It's like put the effort in, you know, actually put your job ads in local newspapers, for example, partner with local recruiting organizations. You know, there are a number of headhunters like based in Nairobi, Kenya, for example. You know, it's, it's, I think it's putting in the work outside of the lip service. And I think, you know, recruiting is a one great way of doing that, but also partnering with local organizations. So if you don't have expertise in house, that's not to say that it doesn't exist elsewhere. Right. So if there's somebody else on the ground doing, doing the work, then perhaps partnering with them, bringing them the visibility and the fundraising that they may need to continue doing the work that they need to do. What do you think of, you know, you're bringing up this idea of essentially it, it feels like common sense, you know, especially when we're talking about menstrual hygiene and the topics, like why wouldn't you just have women that are actually on, you know, or a specific target audience? Why wouldn't you have their experiences or their expertise immediately there? And there seems to be this kind of disconnect between uh, this sort of common sense thing. And maybe it is because we're black and brown and that's just something that we're always on our minds. And I just always wonder, like, you know, how do you approach that sort of conversation of it being common sense, if that makes sense? Like, it, you know, especially when you're talking to people that might not necessarily see it immediately. I mean, I think that like, you know, all things said and done, um, stuff is moving towards in a different light that's probably bringing these topics to, uh, you know, fruition. But I, I, always, I always am struck with the fact of being like, this is something I see all the time. Why don't you see it and how to operate in that space? I think that's a good question. I think it's tough. It's not necessarily, I myself have found that a bit hard to kind of navigate without having to relive past trauma just for the sake of educating uh, my white colleagues how to do that is hard. And I think, you know, what you do find is that there's good intentions, right? Uh, people are like, okay, I do want to understand more and, you know, teach me. 
And I think the onus shouldn't necessarily be on myself or other women of color to do the teaching here. It often does fall on us. I will, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's the case at the moment, but um, <laughs> it's hard because yeah, again, I think a lived experience is very different to, to somebody who has no limited awareness of that. But I think some of the work that, you know, for example, that what you guys are doing, Women of Color and Consulting Collective, it's like, you're raising awareness on these topics by interviewing people on your podcast and similar to what I do with the Black Humanitarian, you know, it's, it's revolution in a small way, but it's, it's an impactful way. So it's, you know, voices that were underrepresented or, or, or silenced. It's on a public forum where white allies can listen in, you know, then I think that could be one of the, one of the ways you can try to have these conversations without it causing um, harm to yourself. That reminds me of something our last guest, Farida, mentioned, which was sometimes in development, you're so focused on the bigger picture that you forget to tackle the individual things. And sometimes like tackling the individual ones is how you get eventually to the bigger picture, which I thought was very fitting because, you know, sometimes you even see that when you're just discussing things in seminar, let alone I can only imagine in practice. Going, actually building on what Madeira was talking about, the, um, uh, gender equality and, and inclusion. I was wondering, since you have worked in three different continents, have you seen differences or similarities that are very stark in the way that different er geographical areas or the people in those areas tackle that specifically? Yeah, that's also a bit of a tough question. I think what is the same, what is a commonality across all the areas or different countries I've worked is, Perhaps the fact that it's not often Black or Indigenous people of colour who are at the helm of the organisations or are taking up the spaces that are, you know, the most well compensated um, or necessarily seen always as the experts in, in the area, even though they are from <laughs> the region that the organisation is based in. So that's a, a commonality I would say I'd seen when I was working in West Africa and Southeast Asia. And I think it's, 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 it's such, in terms of tackling gender equity and seeing different approaches, again, you know, I think that's, yeah, that's quite a large question. And it, I wouldn't say it necessarily has filtered all, all the way into the types of work that I've seen happen in the different offices that I've been in. The only differences I would, I would potentially see maybe is, I think it's different, like, for example, if you're a Black Indigenous person of color or a woman of color working in a majority white culture and how they might approach that topic, as opposed to if you are working, for example, I was working in Senegal. And I think when you're talking about gender equity, for example, and you're working with your, I was working with a social enterprise that was working with smallholder farmers, including female smallholder farmers, then it became quite clear that, you know, in order to ensure that whatever program that we were running was gender, like had gender equity at, at its core, you had to really involve, you know, the women on the ground. You had to go and do focus groups. You had to interview women and to see, figure out what were their challenges being a smallholder farmer, right? Because those are different to being a man. Is it labor? Is it access to tools that can make the work less labor intensive? Is it, you know, you having to get about the crack of dawn to farm and then come back and have the dual labor of, caring for your family and I think in those situations it was more interesting because I felt like we were closer to the women that we were serving 
as opposed to, I think, if you are in a headquarters-based location in Western Europe, I think it's a lot harder to properly understand or, or view a little bit like the, the challenge that they're having because you might have to work with your counterparts in the country offices that you're working to get this information. I think, you know, there's that kind of geographical disconnect sometimes that may be harder to, to devise a gender equitable program that takes into account people that you're serving. And I think that's when I said, like, I had, like, previously in in this interview that it's important then to maybe work with local partners and maybe if you don't have a local presence maybe then just working with local partners to ensure that you're not designing something that doesn't make sense like on the ground yeah and I think I would say this tackles that same idea but in a different way is we've been talking a lot on the podcast and this kind of goes back to what we were talking before um figuring out similarities and differences between European Western world-based international development offices, counterpart interactions in that way, but more about like on the more personal note, we've been struggling with the idea of imposter syndrome. And this has come up like with probably every person, Monica, you can correct me if I'm wrong with any, every person that we've interviewed about the idea of imposter syndrome and especially how it really becomes a, a potential barrier for a lot of women in the workplace. And um, we just thought that it would be really nice to ask if you have on a more personal note, how you've had to navigate imposter syndrome in the workplace. And, you know, this idea of creating networks, how useful it was for you to kind of um, step away and not think about yourself as being unworthy or, uh, you know, not being able to fit in necessarily in where you were working, especially within the field. Yeah, I, I, I completely um, relate to that. I definitely have faced imposter syndrome in the workplace. But just to start off, what I will say is that I'm, and this is something I've just kind of recently um, started to think more about, is that I, I do think imposter syndrome is also a structural issue and not just an individual issue. I think what I mean by that is like too often, like, we place on the individual the onus of removing imposter syndrome or finding solutions for it. So it's like, okay, read books on self-promotion or speak up more and be confident, which is not to say that's not useful advice, but you also have to look at the structures in place that leave women of color feeling disempowered. So if I do speak up, will you A, listen, uh, or B, credit me if I come up with a new idea? Is it easy for me to to continue to feel empowered if I'm in a space where I can't authentically be myself because workplace culture perpetuates white Eurocentric ideals of ways of working or microaggressions aren't being addressed. You know, you can speak up, but you might be told you're too loud or you're too intimidating, you know? So I think those are some things to think about when we, when we talk about imposter syndrome. But for me personally, like, as you mentioned, having a network helps. You know, I have a number of close peers women of color specifically, you know, who am I turn to for advice? And it's also a space where I feel I can air my frustrations and feel heard. One of the people I interviewed, her name's Varone, she spoke about vertical mentorship being just as important as horizontal mentorship. So like building a network of peers, especially if you're having trouble finding senior mentors can still provide you with valuable advice and tips and navigating on how to assert yourself. Also on a non-professional context, you know, my mother is also my like OG mentor. I've seen how she's managed to make gains in her professional life while raising myself and my sister as a single mother. You know, she's always put time into getting certifications, for example. 
So that's something I've learned. Like if I want to build confidence in a certain area, I can take online courses alongside my work as she's done. And there's like really a number of, of free online courses available like Udemy and Coursera that I've you know, had a look at to help me kind of build my confidence professionally. But yeah, definitely having, having peers, support network, um, having access to free resources that are available now online, especially now that we're like in the, the remote work environment, it gives you a little bit more, I think, flexibility to try to try to take that, do that extra work as well. Yeah. Yeah. And feel like you've, I feel like you fit in. I literally just signed up for an Excel class unrelated, but I feel like that that's a good thing to like say. <laughs> it is true though. Like, you know, and I wouldn't have thought about it unless I had spoken to some of my friends who were the ones that told me like, Hey, you don't have to worry about necessarily knowing quite yet, but like get your foot into the door in this particular spot. And I think that, I think that the age of the internet is definitely kind of creating more of a lovely and bad positive and negative ways a lovely communication network which is nice to have yeah. so and 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 after you said that about imposter syndrome being a more of a structural almost like a structural violence I and you mentioned microaggressions that was the first thing I thought of when you had said that maybe we do need to kind of push back about this idea because it, it's true. It's, it's like, you wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel like an imposter unless that people were saying something or reacting to me in a specific way that told me that I wasn't supposed to be there. Like if, if it was the opposite, I would have been fine. So I relate that that's true. I mean, I need to like rethink about how I operate in those spaces. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I do agree with you. I think like there is that, if that space isn't completely accepting of you, then it's really hard to shine. Right. But I think there are ways that we can, you know, either connect with people who, who are similar or if you are able to find that a senior mentor who can advocate for you. And I think even seeing somebody who is like a woman of color in that leadership position, I think it helps a lot because you're like, well, OK, they did it. So there I, I mean, it probably will be difficult, but I can make it there. I think that's that's important when you have that representation in terms of giving you some level of confidence there. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you also mentioned confidence because in a way, even the imposter syndrome, I agree, is probably a structural issue. It's also the fact that mentoring is successful because it doesn't, it might not directly tackle the imposter syndrome, but it helps like with the development of other skills, like softer skills, like confidence and leadership and all of these other things that sometimes women and especially women of color might be a bit more disadvantaged than say a man in general. And so, especially when you're looking at the professional spheres, it's, it's so valuable. Um, so yeah, I, I completely agree with what you've said. No, actually my husband, um, he's a white man. He always like jokes with me, like sell yourself, like you're like, you have the confidence of like a mediocre white man. And I mean, it's funny, but it's true. I mean, as you just rightfully said, men tend to assert themselves and present themselves with the confidence that not all women tend to do, right? I think there are, there's a stat that goes around that, you know, men would apply for a job where they feel like they meet 60% of the criteria, but women will typically only apply when they meet close to 100% of the criteria. And, you know, it, it is kind of like, you know, like reconditioning yourself <laughs> to some extent to to take on that confidence and to assert yourself in that way yeah and uh, yeah and, and you know mentorship 
mentorship does help with that. You know, finding mentors that, you know, maybe also might not be in your, in your sector, as you said, you know, mentors can be somebody who's impacted your life in your, in your school, for example, or somebody you might've met at like an event whom you just admire for, for where they are in the relevant sector that they're in and you connect. Because as you say, it is about soft skills sometimes, like in, like understanding the confidence or pushing, putting yourself out there. Segwaying, actually using the whole networking and imposter syndrome to tackle maybe work-life balance as a woman. We were wondering, do you ever feel pressured to actually need to network more or go to more events or have more connections within the professional sphere just to achieve your goals, but sometimes maybe the bare minimum, if that makes sense? Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, I think that um, I've, I've come to realize networking is, is important in that sense. I think especially when you're looking for advocates, especially when it comes to development, it's like no secret that, you know, to, to succeed, sometimes you really need to know how to network. Have I felt the urge or the need to network to move ahead in my professional goals? Well, I felt it's useful within the organization that I'm working in, um, perhaps access opportunities for upward development and growth and perhaps uh, tap into a network that I didn't necessarily have access to outside of that organization. I will say that, you know, all the jobs I applied to in the past, um, apart from one, were in places where I didn't have a network. So, for example, the jobs I gained in Denmark, Senegal and Germany were all in workplaces where I didn't know anyone. And I'd like to think I got in, you know, based on my own merit. So while I do believe like networking is key and there are some great networking um, groups out there, especially um, women-based groups, you know, I think what does put people off from entering the sector, the need to know that you have like, oh, you only need connections. You need to have connections in order to get in. And, you know, I think that that is true to some extent, but you can also leverage all the tools that are out there to kind of get into the sector and, and find your place. So I do a lot of online research for the places that I want to work in. I use a website such as Glassdoor. They're, it's like an informal way of understanding the work culture of an organization, what the skill sets that they're looking for. And they have like a really good tab where um, for smaller organizations, they list the interview questions and what people have answered. It's a really kind of like cheat method or way to figure out like, okay, what do they typically ask for an interview? So what's the application process like? Because the development sector is very opaque in terms of giving you tips on how to like enter it. So yeah, and I mean, I think when you do need to network, perhaps it can also be good to network with like your alumni on, on LinkedIn, for example, through LSE. I think even if it's not necessarily formal networking in the sense, my peers that I studied with at LSE are gold. I always say the best thing about LSE was really the people I met because they're international. And every single place I've worked, I have come across somebody from LSE. Be it either they were in my ear or I didn't know them, but they had been to LSE. And, you know, I think sometimes your, your network may actually be the people that you're like sitting next to in class. You know, it might not necessarily be, oh, this person has such an amazing job at this organization. It's, you know, it's also investing in the people that you know now, because you have no idea how valuable that relationship will be further down the road. Yeah, it's all about balance. I feel like it, it's about putting yourself out there to the groups that you already have, but also recognizing that you don't have to constantly be sharing your strengths and having the talk about your transferable skills and A, B, and C with every person that you meet. It, 
it can be as simply as just, you know, adding them on LinkedIn and, and that be it until you're ready. Um, I also am curious, like, do you find, cause we're talking obviously, and I really am happy that you made that distinction about consulting being like these short-term sort of agreement, short-term contracts that you work. Do you consider, do you consider consulting in that way, a, net, a place to network, like a way of networking because it's so short. So do you take advantage of the time that you're there to kind of feel out who you meet? Um, like what's the best way of using it as a consult, like as a networking tool? That's actually a really good point that you make. I, I would say take advantage of that. I mean, it, you know, usually um, it's not met with a lot of like celebratory praise that the contracts are, are so short. Yeah. But yeah, it's a really good way to kind of A, put something, a place on your CV, <laughs> even if it's not for very long, but B, leveraging people that are there while you're there. Yeah, because it, it is a revolving door, but you do get to know people who you know, may not stay the company or the organization for too long, but maybe end up moving somewhere else. And you're like, oh, I now have a connection there. Let me reach out and let me find out more about what they're doing. And the work that they're doing is really interesting. Let me reach out. So definitely, I think that the, the short-term length is actually quite, is valuable in that sense, because you do get to meet a lot of people in a, in a very short amount of time. So that, that was, yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. <laughs> so out of curiosity, just for our listeners, the short term in consultancy, how is that defined? Is that under a year or just over a year or just the year mark? So it depends. Um, I've seen organizations have contracts as short as three months um, and typically goes to like one year. I would say those are kind of the typical, like up to a year is typically seen as a short term contract. Anything above a year is then a little bit more unstable. Really depends. A lot of it, you know, sometimes it's outside of the organization's control. It's just based on funding. If you're doing a lot of emergency work, then that typically may mean that you have to do short-term stints, right? Because you just go based where the emergency is. And, and if you might be working more on livelihoods, which is more long-term programmatic work, then you may be lucky to come across a contract type where the, there's funding attached to your position for a year or so. So yeah, sometimes these contracts, for the most part, are linked to funding, which can mean that, you know, if people are so confused, why is it always short-term? It just could be because it's, some of them are really tied to funding, for example. With these short-term contracts, how does that affect the work-life balance in the long term? So if, if your job is split up into three jobs in three months or like two jobs in a year of six months, how, how does that affect Yeah, just the balance in general? Because it's already hard enough, <laughs> let alone with that. Yeah, I think it doesn't, doesn't fit itself well with work-life balance in a very typical sense. So I think it depends on how you view work-life balance, right? So if, for example, your priorities are more so on, you know, life experiences and getting to travel somewhere and not necessarily being tied to a specific place, then, yeah, you, you, you can say that the short-term contracts allows for you to, to travel the world or to be based in a different country without necessarily having to commit five years of your life to be there for example so you know if, if that's how you work life balance then then it, it's a good fit and there are people who who love that and you know that's their high and you know good on them I think and then on the other side I think particularly as, as a woman but I think it also applies for, for for anyone really is if you want to have a family I think then that's when it might then that's why you may have to like reassess how work-life balance may look like with the short-term contracts that you have. 
most of the time people decide if they want to have a family, they're probably mid-career. So perhaps luckily at that point in time, you have like a fixed term contract or a contract or permanent position. So you don't necessarily have to kind of <laughs> deal with those questions. But I think, yeah, uh, particularly if you if you are trying to have a family or if you're trying to figure out like, uh, does this fit with perhaps where I see my life going? I think arming yourself with knowledge about these types of contracts is very helpful. I didn't know anything about these types of contracts before I joined. So that's kind of like one thing I think that I've learned is to research and ask the right questions ahead of time. And I think people can do the research to see if the health insurance, how good the coverage is, if it covers dependents, if you have a family. Is the contract length long enough to warrant you moving your family halfway across the world? Especially um, if you're a mother, does the organization provide leadership courses or pathways for leadership for mid-career women? So, you know, doing a lot of research around that to kind of see um, if the organization fits you. I think a lot of the time we're always trying to fit ourselves to the organization. But I think over time when you gain the experience, you know, you can also then have that con- like conversation with yourself. Does this organization fit me and where I see myself with work-life balance? So it goes both ways, I think. I would like to do a little shout out there um, to Dr. Nancy Onyango. She's a director of audit at the IMF. I, I interviewed her for the Black Humanitarian and you can check out her, her interview on the, on the website. But what I will say, she does talk quite a bit about how to balance career and family and that it's, it's, it's tough. I think she's very realistic about how you might need to prioritize some things at one point and others at a different point. So especially considering how far she's gotten in her career and she's a mother, I think, of two sons. I think it'd be it's quite an interesting read. And so um, to kind of figure out, like, how how do you do it? Because, you know, <laughs> it is hard to see from afar how people manage to balance work and life. Yeah. Yeah, that's an amazing reference. We'll definitely check it out. Thank you. Out of curiosity, what is one thing that you wish someone would have told you before you started and that you would tell someone starting out? What advice I give to people who just started is don't underestimate yourself. Again, as I said before, I think a lot of the time we try to see if we can fit ourselves to the organization or to the job, right? Like The thing is that you are an asset when you come in. When you're young, you bring not to be ageist or anything, but you can bring different perspectives. You know, you bring, you might bring in an idealism (laughs) then maybe others don't have because you're just starting, right? As I think harness that, um, harness um, the energy that you have. Don't be too intimidated. For example, if you work in a large organization by the bureaucracy that you face when you enter or can I make a difference? You know, I've just started. But the, or the, the kind of the discussions that we're having right now, right, you know, geared as well to students working and students studying international development, but also those who may be interested in, interested in it in general. I think, you know, you can affect change in whatever way that you can. So I would, I would always say don't underestimate yourself that you have always something to bring, no matter your age or your experience, I think, as well. One thing that I like to do with the Black Humanitarian is interview people across a large spectrum. So not just program, but operations, people working in IT, people have a finance background, because I think sometimes so people often think, well, I have to study development or I have to have like worked in a nonprofit and volunteered for like X years to be able to enter. And the thing is like you can bring value if you're a coder, if you're, you know, a software developer. You can bring value if you've worked in facilities and have a background in sustainability. 
you know, you can bring value if you're an architect have come across, like, you know, an architect working um, in the UN. So also knowing that, you know, even though you may seem different to the prototypical, like, you know, development worker, et cetera, that you bring value um, through your experiences, through your background. Yeah, I think that that's a great way. And we have a question that kind of talks about that. We wanted to ask you, what does it mean to be a Black humanitarian? What, like, how can we define a Black humanitarian? And you're already just speaking about the fact of it's someone that has value, which is everybody, but it's somebody that has value and um, is adaptable too, it sounds like. I don't know if you have if there, if anybody's ever asked you that to like actually define, but I would love to hear why do you think it's important that we have Black humanitarians? You guys are the first, actually. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think building on what you said, like a Black humanitarian, I think is anyone affecting positive social change in their environment. Um, it's also a super catchy name for the platform. <laughs> super catchy. <laughs> but I mainly focus on, on on black professionals working in international development. But I, what I'm trying to do with it is to like expand this idea of development, like kind of reclaim the term. So it's not just you know typically somebody who's working in the UN or you know a big major international organization, but people who are doing incredible work at the grassroots level, you know affecting impact in their home country or abroad. So yeah, it's it's, it's somebody who's bringing social change and, and, and value. And I, for example, I recently featured this woman called Yine, who co-founded a STEM mentorship initiative in Juba, Sassistan, STEM, oh. um, referring to science, tech. Math. Science. Math. Science, tech, <laughs> engineering, math. Math, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. And her initiative is called Go Girls ICT Initiative. And that, that's great because it's like, you know, it's locally run grassroots led and she's doing this amazing work there. And there's also Doreen, another woman I've interviewed. She worked at One Acre Fund as Rwanda Chief of Staff and had a government relations, but they're a social enterprise, right? So, you know, it's looking at people who, I try to interview people who are diverse across the sector. So I've interviewed 22 people so far, you know, they have a range of backgrounds, as I said, working in IT, um, in gender programming and climate advocacy, nonprofits, international organizations. Uh, country directors, people who literally just entered the sector. So I really look for that. And I think what I, I will do a little shout out here as well, <laughs> using this platform coming. is um, I also recognize a little bit of my bias because my network is very much, you know, UN major international organization focused. So I am really trying to kind of find other people who work at the grassroots level because you know, again, I think it's important to kind of question this idea of what does development mean? And is it from the so-called global north to the global south? Or is it people on the ground affecting social change in their way, you know, empowering people in a way that makes sense? So, you know, I, I think that that's also something that I, I'm, I'm also trying to work on as well with the Black humanitarian, but that's kind of in a nutshell. What they are and why I think they're important is, yeah, I think our stories need to be told uh, if you look at like most leadership boards across the sector, it's disproportionately male and white. And if you want to change this, even though this is kind of very like rah-rah, I think you need to inspire people to join and push for change. But I think most importantly, you need a platform where you can raise the issues that have unfortunately led to non-representative leadership boards in the first place. Why is it that you don't see yourself at leadership level, you know? 
what is stopping that? And I think hearing from people themselves, like what are some of the reasons about that uh, is important. And like, I really do love the work that I do. I love interviewing people and hearing their thoughts and hopes and ambitions. And I think others would too. And I do get a lot of energy. Like right now I'm getting a lot of energy, feeling energized just talking with you because I think it's, it's just so cool and, and fun to, <laughs> to just hear from people, like what they do. And I think that, you know, it's important that people hear that. Other people hear that too. I agree. I think it's, I, I always call it radical self-care. Like this is, it's, you know, it's the only kind of community collective work that you can really get that sort of energy to keep going. And I think the whole, can you hear us team? That's like probably the biggest thing that we've gotten out of this for us as well is that, you know, despite any obstacle, despite any challenge, there is a network and a support system that you have and that we can, you know, like we can keep going, we're doing the right thing. And so it just is nice to have that sort of ear. And I love that you're doing all these shout outs because this is what we want. Like we want everyone to be able to recognize this is a full network. We're essentially networking right now. So for, for those that are listening, you know, so, so it's a, it's a good thing. I think like the only question I have is, you know, it seems like you've interviewed so many people. It sounds like you've, I mean, I know you've done so many panels um, you've spoken, you've really the Instagram, um, another plug, please go follow Black Humanitarian on Instagram if you are listening. Um, but also, you know, what was the most surprising outcome you've gotten from starting the Black Humanitarian that you didn't think was going to come up that maybe like has changed the way you've looked at your work or your life? First of all, was that I could do it. <laughs> yeah, I just... That was really surprising for me. I mean, I set up the Instagram page, you know, this is like my MVP, my minimum viable product. I wanted to like go out and see if people would be interested and just kind of like the general reaction and enthusiasm and engagement for it is something that I was surprised about. But I would also just like, okay, people are interested too. I'm not the only one. But also... Like what's surprising to me, but isn't really that surprising in general, though. It's like the amount of solidarity that I've I've encountered with other anti-racist grassroots initiatives working with this, mm-hmm. you know. And I think what I, I really have to say is that most of these initiatives are run by women, you know, uh, which I think is important to say. I have definitely come across some Black male allies who've consistently supported and amplified the work I do with the Black Humanitarian. So a huge shout out and thank you to them. But I'm hoping that this can be a good encouragement for other men and men of color to just come out and support this work. I don't think that just as women, we should be doing this alone. But yes, coming back to that, it is women seeming to be leading this work. And like, for example, right now, speaking with you guys, you know, this isn't the first time that I've spoken and engaged with you, but the fact that you continue to provide a platform is amazing. And again, women of color led. The same thing with the Race Equity Index, Anaga Network, which is a network for Somali professionals. Ready REDI Collective, um, which is for Black uh, Indigenous people of color working in the UK in development, is another collective that was started by women. You know, they're doing the work when it comes to fostering inclusion and actually like holding the development sector to account, right? So, yeah, super, super woman led there. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, but you know, I, I actually I love to see it. I do love to see it, and I think it's I think it's fantastic to like to to, to do this work and partner with with other people about it. I know mean, I know I want to see others join in this network um, as well. But yeah, I think that that's been some of the surprises. 
no, I mean that, I mean, that pretty much sums it up for us as well, that it's so important to have the community and we just need more people to join. So if anybody's listening, please reach out to us <laughs> for, for to, you know, be inspired and let us tell your stories, especially. So um, Susan, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I've heard you talk before already um, and I've interacted with Susan before previously and it it's been so nice to actually speak directly to you and ask these kind of personal questions about the way you work. And I think that there's a lot of people, especially with WOCO listening, that will be really happy and kind of relieved to hear the way that you've spoken about the sector and like the future to come. So we just want to really thank you for coming and speaking to us today. It really means a lot to us. And before we like finish up, we do do one thing. It is, uh, what we call the anticipated wheel of questions where we indulge our audience and really just ourselves uh, with some fun new information. It's like intro icebreaker questions about our guests. So I am to ask you if you are ready, but you are, are you are going to say yes. <laughs> I can't say that. no. So I'm going to say yes. <laughs> yeah. Year of yes. Year of yes. Okay. All right. So I'm going to hand it over to Monica and she's going to spin the wheel. So here we go. The question is, what's your best read so far? Okay, first of all, I love that you guys have the same wheel of names.com. I'm totally gonna steal it for ice yeah. That is fun. Okay, I'm sitting next to my bookshelf. So I love reading. I think there's too many, so I can't say what's my best read so far. But my best read so far in 2020 is Open Water by Caleb Azuma Nelson. And it's basically just like a love story between two black individuals. And I just wanted something that was just like, you know, I mean, it does cover some topics about what it means to be black and to be a black man living in, you know, uh, in London, living in the UK. And how does that affect how you view yourself and how you open yourself up to relationships? But I just like honestly enjoyed reading about two people um, falling in love with each other's creativity, you know, who they are as people. And yeah, I just felt like it was a nice little Black love story to read. <laughs> uh, no, Black love, Black joy, it's good for everybody. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you so much, Susan, for joining us today and for such a great conversation on just having it all in consultancy as a woman of color. To everyone at home listening, Thanks for tuning in to Can You Hear Us? My name is Monica. And my name is Madeira. And we will see you next time where our team member, Anna, will be co-anchoring for episode five, Race in Academia. So we're very excited to have her. It's her grand debut, everyone. Be nice. (laughs) We'll be back in June. So we want to wish everyone good luck with all of your assessments. Thanks for listening. Bye. We would like to thank our guest, Susan Sepatendira, again for coming on today, as well as the LSE Department of International Development for its support. Especially thank the LSE ID Communications and Events Manager, Ms. Deepa Patel, for all her help in promoting and distributing the episodes. Finally, to our team for researching, recording, and editing this episode. Our music is provided by a sound bank and our logo created by Groka Abad. See you all next time.